Hey guys, Jules here. So we are in our final episode of this mini-series about American Catholic fiction. By the way, this would be a good time. If you haven't listened to the first three episodes, please go back and listen to those. It will help put this one into context. I began this series by asking myself a question. Where are all of the Catholic writers? And if they're out there, why aren't they receiving the same critical acclaim as they once were? as in the days of Flannery O'Connor, for example. Well, as it turns out... And the winner of the National Book Award for Fiction is Redeployment by Phil Clyde! So who is Phil Clyde? And what does he have to do with a modern Catholic literary revival? Well, this is the story of a prayer in the furnace. Okay, so we are in our final episode of this series on Catholic fiction. We've spent the previous episodes talking a bit about the history of Catholic writers in America, the benefits of writing for both secular and faith-based audiences, and of course, the integrity of the art as a means of reaching more souls. For example, in our last episode, we talked about Catholic fiction written for Catholic demographics, not in any way sacrificing the integrity of the art, but focusing instead on writing as a means of engaging Catholic readers and God willing, other readers as well. But of course, we are also on the lookout for another kind of Catholic writer, right? The whole purpose of this podcast was to search for those modern flanneries, the writers who have achieved success in the secular literary world, while at the same time inserting, however subtly, Catholic themes into their literature. And to begin in my research, several people pointed me to Suzanne Wolfe. You know, I I regard myself as a serious fiction writer. Uh, It's a work of literary fiction, not genre fiction. And therefore, what I'm trying to get at is the sort of human reality um, to this story, to, you know, Augustine's story, the human reality, the cost of that. Suzanne was born in Great Britain, as you may have been able to tell. (laughs) But she is, in fact, an American citizen and has lived here for several decades. So we, frankly, will claim her genius, too. I wanted to talk with Suzanne about a book she wrote about two years ago called Confessions of X. Now, Confessions of X seems to find itself in an almost impossible situation. It is a book with deeply religious themes and one that religious audiences would enjoy. But it's also received acclaim and success outside of typical Catholic audiences. As you may have guessed, it's a book about the mysterious woman in the life of St. Augustine, often known simply as his concubine. We never learn her name or her story in any of Augustine's writings, so Suzanne attempts to draw out a story which is uniquely hers. Well, first of all, it's it's X's story. It's the concubine's story. It's not 
It's not Augustine's story. She's not there as a little woman to tell the story about the great man. She's there to tell her own story and of her love for him. And, and of course, that involves him, of course, but he's not the focus. She is. Now, let me ease your fears here for a minute, folks, because I am fiercely protective of St. Augustine. (laughs) I love him very much. This story is not a bashing of Augustine or his treatment of his concubine. Really, the story isn't so much about him at all, honestly. Instead, it's about this hidden woman, and it's written with incredible insight and sympathy toward a young couple deeply in love. Anyone familiar with Augustine and his writings knows that a central theme to his works is the importance of beauty. And this, to me, is also very critical in our understanding of the experience of the modern Catholic writer. Because when when we, as human beings, when we feel like, you know, our will and our rationality is in control of everything and that we can control everything, we become monsters. And we, we need to be caught off guard by beauty and sort of almost seduced into love by beauty. And that's what God does because we're sort of wayward children. And if we could work everything out and plot everything out and control everything with our minds, we'd destroy the world in a blink of an eye. But like many great literary figures before her, Suzanne did not want to sugarcoat the hardships and the chaos of life. For Pete's sake, she is writing about a woman many considered a concubine to one of the most important figures in our church's history. You know, truth is not separate from life. Um, You know, fiction, you know, words, um, it's not like a frilly kind of doily upon which the truth sits. And you know what I mean? You you can't just pick off your your truth and walk away and forget, you know, the rest. Um, truth really is embedded in life, right? And which, of course, is very incarnational. The word became flesh. Jesus is from a particular place in a particular town with a particular mother, you know, and, you know, he's not, he's not some kind of ideal. He's not a platonic ideal. Um, He talks about his father uh, as opposed to, you know, God of the universe. Uh, You know, he's, he's saying Abba, father, daddy. It's very, um, in a sense, small, it's immediate, it's, it's, it's life. And that's what fiction does. It gives us felt life. Suzanne is doing something just remarkable. She is writing a religious story, but she isn't necessarily writing for a religious audience. 
Suzanne's work is wildly acclaimed outside of Catholic circles, including among our Protestant brothers and sisters. Confessions of X was even voted by Christianity Today as the book of the year in 2017, a just amazing achievement for a Catholic author. For Suzanne, the appeal of her work has honestly a simple reason. I just want to tell the best story of Augustine and the concubine that I can and make it the most sort of beautiful and truthful that I can. And if, and I just sort of have a faith that if it seems deeply authentically human, then it will find its audience in 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 the deeply authentically human people. <laughs> now, for those who just want romance, for those who you know want mere hagiography of Augustine, um, then they might be disappointed. Um, but for those who want to sort of again, you know, the felt life of human beings struggling to make sense of their worlds and to love each other and to 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 do the best that they can do then 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 I believe that the the book will find its audience So what of those deeply human works which are not necessarily intended for religious audiences. Where, as we began this series by asking, are the modern Flannerys? Well, I think it's time to introduce this guy. So my name is Phil Cly. I am a fiction writer primarily. I wrote a book of short stories called Redeployment. As we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Phil Cly has a remarkable achievement under his belt. <laughs> he is the winner of the National Book Award for Fiction. For those of you who aren't aware or had never heard of it, the National Book Award is the most prestigious award given to a writer in the United States. And each year, the award, which tends to get the most buzz, is the National Book Award for Fiction. And Phil, a Jesuit-trained man who considers himself in the tradition of Flannery O'Connor and Walker Percy, he won this award only four years ago. Now, Phil won for his book, Redeployment, which is a collection of short stories focused on the devastations of war, both home and abroad. And for Phil, fiction was a means by which he could make sense of his own questions. As a veteran of the Iraq War, Phil had a lot of things to try to make sense of upon his return. And fiction provided him with an outlet to explore those questions. But I was also very interested in the kind of moral choices um, that that men and women make in war zones or sort of have to make in war zones and what the after effects of that are and what the sort of moral and spiritual uh, consequences of those choices are. And, you know, fiction is really the only place to explore those things with any kind of sort of richness and rigor. And when you put your ideas about, about those things into a fictional story, you you end up trying to make the characters more real and 
their reactions more realistic. And, and, and the process of doing that sort of exposes the gaps in your knowledge, it exposes the things that you didn't know, and forces you to think much more deeply about the issues and to put them under pressure and to examine them from, from all different angles. Now, I feel like this is a good point to offer a bit of a disclaimer. Phil's writing is very, very real. It can be vulgar, and it is certainly violent. It's a book about war, after all. And frankly, it's a really tough read. Phil is incredibly talented, but the stories are very difficult to take in, and I often found myself having to put it down and take a break just because the stories were so gut-wrenching. But this, of course, was kind of the point. And also the kind of emphasis on human suffering and redemption um, within the context of ritual and community were very important. I when I was writing one of the stories in in uh, redeployment, Prayer in the Furnace, you know, I'm, I'm talking about uh, a unit in a very violent place where the stakes are very much life or death and where the moral choices uh, that people are making, the kind of failures of character among some of the characters uh, result in huge moral costs. And we can see those things very clearly because it's a war zone. So um, the results uh, are, are measured in human lives and it, it kind of provokes our, our sort of moral horror. Now, I have two quick points to make here. First off, if we make the claim that we must support our veterans, then we have to be willing to listen to their stories, however difficult and vulgar. So that's the first point. <laughs> and the second, the criticisms Catholics have toward this kind of literature would also negate some of the most influential Catholic writers in history, including Flannery O'Connor, but others as well, Graham Greene, Evelyn Waugh, and many, many more. But back to Phil's stories, or more specifically, one story. It's a story we find in the center of redeployment, and it is, to me, what perfectly encompasses the heart of this unique type of Catholic literature. Phil has already mentioned it, but it's called A Prayer in the Furnace. So Prayer in the Furnace opens with a conversation between Rodriguez and the chaplain where Rodriguez tells him about what his unit is doing. And towards the end of that first conversation that they have, he he asks him, you know, basically whether or not the, whether or not the chaplain would be able to share this conversation if, uh, if 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 it's a confession versus whether it's not a confession. Throughout a prayer in the furnace, this tension which exists between the chaplain and the central character Rodriguez becomes heightened with each page. Rodriguez declines confession, uh, and so the two questions that that begin are the the story are one is the chaplain going to be able to resolve this practical um, and moral problem of can he get the command to take some sort of action uh, against this unit that is has is um, being excessively violent in the city. But two, there's the question of whether this chaplain is going to be able to actually bring Rodriguez in and and provide him the sacrament of reconciliation, uh, which Rodriguez is in sort of too agitated, angry, and, 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 and kind of embittered state to want. 
Now, spoiler alert here <laughs> for anyone who doesn't want to know the ending of the story, but I feel it's important to talk about the ending so that we can address one critical component of Catholic literature. I'm going to let Phil describe more about the ending and why he chose to write it in the way which he did. The question for me um, at the end of the story, and I, you know, I went over the, the ending many times. Um, and one way to have ended it would have been to uh, you know, have Rodriguez walk into the confession booth and, and kind of tie everything up as though it's fine. Um, that that didn't feel right to me for a variety of reasons. And it was less sort of important to me that we provide that kind of sort of catharsis after a story that, that you know, touches on things a lot broader than, you know, this kind of one-on-one interaction, and yet, at the same time, for the reader to feel the stakes of that question, right? You you desperately, or at least I desperately, wanted Rodriguez to to walk in. Um, And I wanted the reader to be left with that longing rather than left with that sort of tidy resolution. He wanted the reader to be left with the longing. This, for me, is at the heart of all Catholic literature, whether we're discussing genre fiction, specifically written to entertain a Catholic audience, short fiction, religious fiction meant for broader audiences, or brilliant artistic achievements in both secular and religious circles, it seems to me what is at the heart of all good Catholic fiction is this ability to leave readers longing for more. There are no tidy resolutions in Catholic fiction, as there often aren't tidy resolutions left in life either. (laughs) Good Catholic writers seem to have a sense that this world wasn't meant to be our permanent home, and that real perfection and resolution only comes with our eternal reward. Life is chaotic and messy, and it's not meant to be perfect. Otherwise, why even bother longing for more? This is where the rubber meets the road, folks. (laughs) We are living a prayer in the furnace. closing thought here. You may be thinking, as I often did while I was making this series, why haven't I heard of these people? (laughs) Well, I think we should address this question with two points. First, as I have said again and again in this series, there is room for both religious and secular writing in the Catholic literary world. Genre fiction directed towards a Catholic audience, short fiction with an artistic bent, religious fiction with an immense critical acclaim, or general fiction with subtle and beautiful Catholic undertones, even going so far as to win the National Book Award, (laughs) all are important within our own subculture. But the second thing to address perhaps might be the most important. In my research of these individuals, it is almost impossible to find critical analysis, reviews, or promotions of their work by members of our church. 
I looked and I looked. But when you ask most people in your parish or in your communities if they've read any of these names, I guarantee you most will say that they've never even heard of them. And that is just a devastating reality. Because here's the thing, when I started this series, I kept asking that question, which I've repeated again and again, where are all the modern flanneries, right? As if the fault lay with the writing talent. But I came quickly to realize just how wrong of an assumption that is. Because the fault is not with the writers. The fault, of course, is with the church. Here's Dr. Ralph Wood one more time, who you heard from in the first two episodes. I think the blame really lies with the church. The church has had such a thin witness uh, in the years um, since then that artists have not been inspired by its witness um, to make the life of the church the basis and, and, and form of their imagination as the church was for Flannery O'Connor and for Walker Percy. We will need more from our church when it comes to supporting and promoting artists, particularly within the Catholic literary community. We need institutional church to encourage its flock to read the works of these Catholics. Maybe dioceses can even host events honoring and promoting the work of Catholics in writing. But we also need lay organizations to do their part. In my limited research of Catholic publications for each of the authors we met in these episodes, they were almost non-existent (laughs) in Catholic publications. Think about that. A Catholic author wins the National Book Award and his book is barely reviewed, highlighted, and his accomplishment is rarely mentioned by Catholic media, diocesan organizations, etc. This is a tragedy, but it's one we all have a part in fixing. Many thanks to my sweet husband, Ryan, for his continued help and guidance, for Kate Beek, whose support was a necessary component in getting this podcast off the ground. Thank you to Sean Garrison for the opening music and many of the music found in this episode. You can check out Sean's music at his website and buy his album, Exceeding, which is just wonderful. All of the information and the names of all of our interviewees and their works can be found on our website as well. And thank you so much again to the listeners for spreading the word about our humble little podcast. Our next four-part series on Catholic blogging will be out November 1st. So please tell your friends to subscribe and give us a like on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, here's a little preview for our next series. God bless, and we'll see you in November. Now, the obvious downside is some of the the more violent and vulgar and inappropriate like things that you face. Yeah. I don't want you to keeping in mind that this is a family-friendly show, like, just, can you give an example of maybe just your worst encounter from someone? All of my, okay, I had one piece, and this is the piece that I wrote that just has gotten and continues to get the most pushback, and I bet you can't guess what it is, because I've written about homosexuality, about abortion, about euthanasia, about violence against women, about... It was about dog moms, okay? I wrote this piece after going to Whole Foods one Mother's Day morning 
and I observed this interaction, which it was a humorous interaction. And I guess maybe because I was like a thousand weeks pregnant, my take on it was not perhaps as charitable as it could have been. But I was also trying to like show how funny it was. And people lost their minds. (laughs) I mean, I'm like, really? Of all the things that I'm going to write, this is the one that's going to get me like (laughs) death threats. Like, I hope you – I mean – I had some crazy, 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 crazies come out of the woodwork. 